Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For two centuries, we've been pronouncing gerrymandering wrong. The practice is named after Elbridge Gerry, who, as the governor of Massachusetts, signed into law an 1812 electoral map with an oddly shaped state senate district, designed by his Democratic-Republican colleagues to maximize their electoral chances. It started in Boston, extended up to the New Hampshire border, and then turned a corner to head due east to the Atlantic, looking a little like an upside-down L. Soon after, a cartoon appeared in the Boston Gazette, transposing the body of a salamander onto the district, menacingly hooking around part of the state. Gerrymander is a portmanteau of the governor's surname and the salamander, with the hard g changed to a soft j. It's a bit of a rough deal in the legacy stakes for Elbridge Gerry, who was also a founding father and America's fifth vice president. His name, and not even the correct pronunciation of it, will forever be associated with the underhanded electoral practice. As the latest maps for House districts are decided, how gerrymandered will they be? I'm John Fassman, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how could redistricting be made more fair? Once a decade, states have the chance to redraw boundaries for electoral districts. The incentive to design maps to optimize political control has long been irresistible. Those drawn in the wake of the 2020 census are currently being finalized. How much of an impact might redistricting have on party control in Washington? John Preto is taking a well-earned holiday this week. So joining me to discuss the subject are Charlotte Howard, our New York bureau chief, and Elliot Morris, our data genius in Washington, D.C. Elliot Welcome to the show. How are things? Hey, thanks, John, for having me. Um, I was doing some research for this uh, show, and I wanted to give you a little fun story. So I took a run this morning, 6 o'clock. I wanted to see how many congressional districts I could go through on a 30-minute run. Uh, and I got through three congressional districts here in Northern Virginia, the 8th, 11th, and 10th. That's impressive. That's hard to beat. Charlotte, how are things in New York? Um, things are good. I want to first just note that Elliot took as fact that data genius is the proper descriptor for him. It's included in his professional <laughs> signature below his name. But that's what his business cards say. Exactly. Um, in New York, it's warm. It's springtime, which is always a funny day in the city. It's when an intrinsically grumpy group of people start acting like Australians. Um, but it's nice. 
Oh, that's good to hear. I'm somewhat in mourning this week for P.J. O'Rourke, who was one of the funniest writers ever to put pen to paper uh, and who died earlier this week. I cannot recommend his books hardly enough. Start with The Parliament of Horrors and just, and just go from there. All right, we're going to a somewhat less funny subject than Mr. O'Rourke, but an important one nonetheless. This week we're talking about redistricting. And it really isn't too much of a stretch to call Elliot a data genius. There aren't many people in the country who know more about this stuff than he does. So I'd like to start by just asking Elliot to explain briefly. I think most listeners have an idea of what redistricting is. But just give us a little explanation of how it works and and why we're talking about it now. So redistricting in America happens every 10 years after the U.S. Census Bureau takes its, you know, years-long enumeration of the population mandated by the Constitution. And with those updated population counts, the states draw new state legislative and congressional districts to make sure they have things like equal population and meet some other criteria, like communities and cities remain intact. Uh, They don't look funky like salamanders in Boston. And the redistricting process can sometimes be called gerrymandering if those districts look really weird, if they have racial biases or partisan biases. So that's why we often hear redistricting and gerrymandering slightly uh, interchangeable. Okay. Thanks, Elliot. You are a redistricting expert, but you are not the only redistricting expert. Charlotte, you talked to another one this week, right? Yes. I spoke with Nick Stephanopoulos at Harvard, who works on this stuff. And before we got into the electoral strategies at play, we spoke about how it works in process. Once upon a time, this was an arduous, time-intensive process. You'd have people, legislative aides typically, working on paper with huge maps of the state, with calculators trying to figure out if all their districts were about the same population or not. That era is long gone. So now we have computer software that has incorporated into it all the population data, race data, partisan data, and so on. And so now the actual process of designing districts is just a matter of clicking on uh, one part of a state in software, clicking on an adjoining part of the state, linking them up, and as you go, making sure the populations are about right. So that's really interesting because what you started out describing in your answer was something that sounded actually pretty automated, right? Because you could have the computer software um, follow the criteria as laid out by the state. And so how is it that politicians are able to rig the process more in their own favor? Yes, you certainly could tell a computer, you know, in an automated way, spit out one or a hundred or a million maps, and we'll, we'll come up with our district plan that way. In reality, politicians in charge of the process never fully automated. They use software to design the districts, but it's very much human choices that are uh, determining the shapes of the districts. And so software is being used, but it's not automated at all. People are clicking and clicking and clicking within the software, typically with an eye toward partisan advantage, you know, making sure that more districts favor their side, fewer districts favor the opposing side. And so what would be the metric to look at for whether a given map is fair? So political scientists have worked out a number of different quantitative measures of partisan fairness in districting. One of these that I've worked on is called the uh, efficiency gap, for example. The intuition behind the efficiency gap is that if you're a gerrymanderer, there are two ways that you can achieve advantage for your side. You can either crack the opposing side's voters, that means uh, disperse them across a large number of districts where they can't elect 
their preferred candidates, or you can pack the opposing side's voters, over-concentrate them into a small number of districts where their preferred candidates win, but by huge inefficient margins. So both cracking and packing produce what political scientists call wasted votes, votes that are not essential to a candidate winning. So in the case of cracking, all of the votes that are cast for a losing candidate are wasted. And in the case of packing, all the votes that are cast for a winning candidate over the 50% threshold the candidate needs to win are wasted too. So the efficiency gap, which again is just one of a family of different metrics, uh, it adds up each side's total wasted votes over all the districts in a map, uh, subtracts one total from the other total, and divides by all the votes that are cast. And so it tells you in a single number which side is benefiting or is being harmed by all of the aggregate cracking and packing choices in a district map. And so using that measure or another one that's of interest to you, how do the 2022 maps look so far? So it depends a lot on whether you're looking at individual states, which often look terrible, or the country as a whole, which actually is looking remarkably balanced. You know, we we have a lot of gerrymanders this cycle, some of the most aggressive gerrymanders we've seen in decades, but they're kind of offsetting. So you have big Republican gerrymanders in places like uh, Texas, Georgia, Indiana, Tennessee, but you also have pretty sizable Democratic gerrymanders in Illinois, New York, Maryland, Oregon, and so on. And so on net, at the completely national level, we're likely to see a U.S. House map that is ever so slightly tilted in Republican direction, but uh, not by very much. So I expect we're going to see an efficiency gap for the whole U.S. House on the order of just a couple of percentage points in a Republican direction, which will be a big drop from the substantially larger pro-Republican efficiency gap that we had in the previous decade. And is that just because Democrats have become better at gerrymandering? What's the reason for that rebalancing? Yeah, it's not really the Democrats are, are getting more skilled at it. It's the Democrats have more opportunities to gerrymander now compared to in 2011. Every purple state was under full Republican control and drew a Republican gerrymander. This cycle, things are more mixed. Uh, And now Democrats have unified control of places like New York and New Mexico and Oregon, where they didn't in the last cycle. Uh, And so the net effect is just to have created more opportunities for Democrats to gerrymander too. And that's offset the Republican gerrymandering. Am I correct in thinking that part of the strategy this time around is that Republican gerrymanders are making pink districts more red? And if so, what's the long-term implication of that? A number of Republican maps are not maximally aggressive. They're not trying to just maximize the raw number of Republican seats. Um, Instead, they're doing exactly what you said. They're they're taking competitive Republican seats and making them uncompetitive Republican seats. Whereas a true seat-maximizing gerrymander would want to maximize the number of 55, 45, 53, 47 Republican seats because that's the most efficient use of Republican voters. So I think that tells me two things. One, it sort of tells me the Republicans kind of think they have this in the bag. They think there's no way they're not going to win the House in 2022, and so they can afford to to play it safe. But two, it also tells me they're kind of afraid 
of what the long-term shifts in the electorate might look like. You know, why are they so desperate to draw uh, 65% Republican seats in suburban Texas and suburban Georgia? I think it's because they're afraid that those districts are moving in a Democratic direction. And if they're only drawn to be 55-45 Republican, they might flip by the end of the decade. Elliot, let's start with you. One thing I found interesting that Stephanopoulos said was that individual states may look terrible, but the map as a whole is fair. Is that something we should feel okay about? You know, it seems to me like it's pretty cold comfort if you're a Republican in Westchester County or a Democrat in the Dallas excerpts. Yeah, it's important in America, I guess, to remember that it's a federal system with states that have their own responsibilities over their people and that people are represented at multiple levels. At least that's, I guess, what a political scientist might say. So someone like Nick Stephanopoulos you know, will often write about redistricting and say a balanced national map is compatible with extremely biased uh, disenfranchisement level uh, biases at the state level. Uh, and I guess that is pretty much cold comfort. If you have a state like Wisconsin, which is extremely hard to redistrict fairly because Democrats are so packed in the cities, the, the geographic segregation there is very high, uh, then you're going to naturally end up with maps that are just bad for them. Um, and then when you combine some nefarious intent on the part of politicians, you can end up with state legislative maps, for example, that give supermajority control to minority parties. Uh, those are sort of obvious drawbacks to the American system of redistricting. One of the things that I found most interesting about that conversation was, of course, the implications for 2022, but really the implications for later in the decade of Republicans making districts that leaned Republican much more solidly Republican, because it looks like that's a strategy that almost seems like insurance against political and demographic change in some districts. So even if you thought that there might be a swing of an influx of a certain type of voter to an area, younger voters or a more diverse set of voters who might favor Democrats, that if you make those districts really, really solidly red, then the demographic change or the change in uh, political opinion has to be much more dramatic to offset what Republicans are doing through their gerrymander. So that's something that I think uh, Democrats should keep in mind as they look forward towards the end of the decade and I think is frankly pretty shrewd on the part of Republicans. Yeah, it seems like we, we often assume that when there's a big popular vote shift in a presidential election or when a president wins the popular vote by a wide margin that he often brings people in on his or her coattails. This redistricting seems like insurance against something like that happening. So we can't take for granted that if a Democrat wins in 2024 or 2028 by large margins, that Congress will also, or at least the House, will also change hands, right? So when we're crunching the redistricting numbers for 2020, we see this decline in responsiveness, which is sort of a concept distinct from fairness which makes for a extremely biased map once you get to the landslide phase of the election. So we just calculated last week that Republicans winning in a landslide gets them about 50 more House seats. Landslide's like a 10 uh, percentage point win for them at the national level. But Democrats now only get about 30 seats. 
Um, and that's already a decline from the pre-2010 maps where Democrats won about 260 seats in the House with a 10-point margin. Now that, that would be something like 240. So this creates some problems, I guess, we're seeing today with, with Joe Biden the, and the Democrats where you can't really get what you want to get done, even if you have what, uh, what we might consider a mandate in Congress. Can I just pick out at something you said? The difference between responsiveness and fairness. I think most people would think of those things, if not as synonyms, then as broadly similar. The Venn diagram between the two is broadly overlapping. But what is the difference between a responsive map and a fair map? Well, a fair map means when you win 50% of the vote, you win 50% of the seats or 50% plus one of the seats, I guess. A responsive map means as you continue to win more votes, you win a sort of proportional number of seats. Now, as in America, uh, the parties have sorted geographically and you get gerrymandering, which makes more seats uncompetitive. You get declining responsiveness. Um, I, I think it would behoove people to think of these concepts as, as dual factors of a fair legislative chamber. I think what we're left with for this cycle is the reality, as Nick pointed out, that you have Republicans and Democrats both acting in a way that is objectively unfair, but because they're both doing so, it nets out to something that is more or less fair. And I think if you're a listener in any other part of the world, or indeed an American listener, you look at this and say, how can this possibly be how it works? But indeed, here we are. And here we are. I think we'll table that discussion for now. Thanks very much, both. We will hear about a redistricting cycle that didn't go to plan in a minute. But first, if you like what we do here on Checks and Balance, you will love an Economist subscription. It'll let you read and listen to everything we produce. This week, that would include a six-page, everything you ever wanted to know about Ukraine. Elliot and Charlotte, what did you guys like this week? We have a great story by our colleague Ludwig Siegel on Russia's attempt to become more economically independent, in this instance through building up its own tech ecosystem. I think it's a really important theme as governments try to look inward rather than outward to boost their economies. Yeah, that was a good story. Elliot, what about you? And I particularly enjoyed this week's graphic detail, the sort of data crunchy piece from my colleagues on the data team about crime in America, specifically whether or not there's a relationship uh, between how democratic or Republican a city is and its recent increase in crime. They find no relationship, which might be uh, unsurprising to some, but they do it in a really novel and surprising way, as is the way the, the graphic detail section so often works. Yeah, when I read graphic detail, I always learn something I didn't know before. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe, and it's in the notes for this episode. In early 1990, the campaign to encourage people to fill out their census was in full swing. From rappers to the president. One of the ways our Constitution preserves our rights is to require the government to conduct a census every 10 years. The airwaves were filled with calls for Americans to complete the survey. It helps allocate federal, state, and local funds to your community. The 1990 census data would be used to redraw congressional maps for the next decade. It makes good sense to answer the census. Who was in charge of doing that would be decided by an event later that year, November's midterm elections. This is the 90 Vote 
Democrats did well in federal elections, building on their majorities in both houses, but winning at the state level would determine who controlled redistricting. And despite not picking up California, gubernatorial victories in Texas and Florida seemed like they would secure Democratic electoral success for the next decade. And despite energetic presidential campaigning in the three biggest governor's races, Democrats took two of three, most important for reapportionment. Winning the governor's mansions and retaining legislative majorities in those two big and growing states would give them full control of redrawing their congressional districts. Republicans, meanwhile, didn't have such control in any states that were gaining or losing seats, meaning they would have to negotiate over the maps. Having aimed a decade earlier to gain more say in the redistricting process, it looked like the GOP had failed and that Democrats would be able to extend their 35-year control of the House into the new millennium. Ladies and gentlemen, on November 9, 1994, Bill Clinton cut a downcast figure. I spoke with both Republicans and Democrats to congratulate those who won and console those who lost their elections. The previous day's midterms had been a disaster for his party. And though we have made progress, not enough people have felt more prosperous and more secure or believed we were meeting their desires for fundamental change in the role of government in their lives. With the Democrats in control of both the White House and the Congress, we were held accountable yesterday, and I accept my share of the responsibility in the result of the elections. The so-called Republican Revolution saw the party pick up 54 more seats in the House, and their eight-seat gain in the Senate meant they had unified control of Congress for the first time since 1952. Four years after the census, redistricting turned out not to matter all that much. A demographic realignment toward the GOP in the South, Bill Clinton's unpopular policies on tax and health care, and shrewd Republican campaigning were all far more significant. Gerrymandering can certainly tip the scales in one party's favor, but it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Redistricting is not destiny. Charlotte, redistricting may not be destiny, but do you take it as red even so that that Republicans retake control of Congress this year? Even leaving aside the question of redistricting, I think it seems pretty hard to see how Democrats are able to hang on. Um, The Biden presidency has had a series of issues, some of its own making, some not. But I think that he's not a strong leader of the party and that Republicans should feel optimistic. Elliot, same question to you. Do you take it as read that Republicans retake Congress? And if so, what does the map have to do with it? A lot? Not very much? Nothing? Presuming Republicans do about as well as Democrats did in 2018 with their sort of midterm backlash to Donald Trump, they'll gain around 40 seats in the House. Um, If you look at the redistricting maps now and compare them to their 2020 iteration, Democrats have gained maybe eight seats on average, depending on how you count it. So I I think that's really good proof of the redistricting is not destiny point. If there's a big Republican wave, it would overpower any losses they would have suffered from redistricting. And so how typical is a 40-seat pickup in this situation? I mean, I realize we may be dealing with quite a small sample set here, but we're talking about a midterm election 
and a redistricting process. Is 40 seats unusual? So on average, in the 20 or so midterm elections since 1944, the party out of power has lost about 30 seats in the House and four or so seats in the Senate. So um, the type of waves we've seen recently are certainly historically large that could have something to do with polarization, could have something to do with uh, the decline in the incumbency advantage for House members. A 35-seat, 40-seat gain for Republicans wouldn't be anything surprising in my mind. I have a question for you, Elliot, just taking a step back, which is that when you think about these partisans uh, rubbing their hands together over these electoral maps, you get the impression of these puppet masters who are able to accurately design uh, an electoral map to their advantage. Is there evidence in the past that it doesn't go exactly as planned? Or what are some of the ways in which this can go wrong, even when partisans do their best to make sure everything goes right? Just like we said, redistricting isn't destiny. Election watchers, political scientists like to say demographics aren't destiny. The way that plays out in redistricting is that over the life cycle of these maps, they're in place for roughly a decade unless courts strike them down or so, political coalitions can change quite a bit. So if you draw a lot of, say, suburban whites into districts, and then you lose votes, particularly among suburban whites, you're going to face steeper losses in those districts. And that's exactly what happened to Republicans in 2018 or so, when a backlash to Donald Trump sort of swept lots of their congresspeople in well-educated white suburban districts in places like suburban Austin and Dallas and in Michigan, suburban Detroit. And they lost more districts than they would have if they had shored up their margins in peaker states. It seems like they're sort of fighting the last battle now. That's what they're doing now is making their redder seats or pinker seats redder. Uh, We are kind of seeing the reverse on the Democratic side, where they're trying to make competitive Republican seats slightly competitive on the Democratic side. And, And because prediction is hard, especially about the future, how these things play out down the line uh, are hard to anticipate. So parties are left making the decisions that's best for them right now. All right. Thanks very much, Elliot and Charlotte. We'll be back in a minute to hear why a debate over Alabama's congressional map has made it to the Supreme Court. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So Alabama was sued over the congressional map it drew for this cycle. The plaintiffs claimed that it denied African-Americans the right to elect their candidate of choice. And Alabama as a state is about 27 percent African-American. And the black population predominates in a region known as the Black Belt, which is a broad swath that sort of runs across the state from east to west and in the cities of Birmingham and Montgomery. And it would have been really easy for the state to draw two sensible, contiguous majority African-American districts. And those two contiguous districts would have been roughly proportional 
to the share of African-Americans in the state as a whole. Instead, they didn't do that. They drew one very heavily African-American district in the west of the state, and then they sort of dispersed the African-American population in the eastern black belt among three other heavily Republican congressional districts. And so after being overturned by a lower branch, the state appealed to the Supreme Court, which just reinstated the map pending a full hearing this fall. I talked to Devin Rosborough, who is an attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union, which represented some of the plaintiffs in that case. The problem with Alabama's congressional maps is that they've preserved these districts for the last number of decades that basically pack a substantial amount of black Alabamians into one of the seven congressional districts in numbers that are larger than necessary for black voters to choose candidates of choice. And in doing so, they do that along with cracking In other words, dispersing black voters that are not in that district among a number of other congressional districts, despite their being relatively geographically concentrated. Um, And this is despite the fact that Alabama basically only kept seven congressional seats because of growth in the non-white population in Alabama. The white population in Alabama actually declined in absolute numbers over the past decade, whereas the population of black Alabamians increased, as did other groups of color. And so you use the terms, you use the words pack and crack. Are both of those things things that are undesirable or actually illegal? So they're undesirable. Um, Packing and cracking in and of themselves are not necessarily illegal. It's It's really dependent on how they're used. Here, they're used in a way that Um, undermines the ability for black voters to elect candidates of choice and therefore implicates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and and, and also the the racial gerrymandering doctrine under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. So can you give us a brief explanation? What is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and what does the 14th Amendment have to say about racial gerrymandering? Sure. So uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act basically is a provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and it allows... In this context, voters to sue for um, vote dilution. So basically where a state or a jurisdiction has drawn lines in a way that when looking at the totality of the circumstances, including whether what's, what's called racially polarized voting. So voters of one racial group voting one way, voters of another racial uh, white voters voting another way and white voters preventing minority voters from electing candidates of choice. So under the totality of the circumstances, if the maps are drawn in a way which prevent that equal opportunity for members of minority group to elect candidates of choice, that can be basically a form of vote dilution under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The 14th Amendment and the racial gerrymandering doctrine concern how race is used to draw district lines. So basically what the Supreme Court has said is that Race can be considered as a factor and, and you know, in, indeed to comply with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act really should be. Um, but if it is used as a factor that predominates over all other districting considerations, then it violates the Constitution because it separates voters based on race unless the state does so in a, what they say a narrowly tailored way. So basically to comply with the Voting Rights Act. So if a state purposely drew a majority black district, but did so sort of just to the level necessary to allow black voters to elect a candidate of choice without unnecessarily 
packing or without a situation where they didn't really need to draw such a district that could be a racial gerrymander. The Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on political gerrymandering. Racist gerrymandering is illegal. But when political affiliation and race overlap as strongly as they do, how do you draw that line? Which category predominates? Right. I, and that's that's uh, especially tricky in light of the decision in Rucho v. Common Cause by the Supreme Court where they said partisan gerrymandering is a political question and federal courts can't hear those claims. So you're right. Here in Alabama, um, it wasn't really an issue because the state has never asserted that they drew these lines for partisan reasons. You know, we had extensive testimony and the representatives who were in charge of the map drawing process, the individual who drew the maps, none of them said that partisanship played a role. And the district and guidelines the state enacted, partisanship didn't play a role. So that that's sort of outside the realm of consideration here. And, you know, here in Alabama, what the evidence showed was that voting is racially polarized. And not only, yes, in terms of the fact that Black Alabamians typically have voted for Democrats in recent years and white Alabamians for Republicans, but even if you look at party primaries um, or national elections, there's still racial polarization. So, Charlotte, one thing that's striking about Alabama's lone African-American congressional district is it's not just that it's the state's only Democratic district. It's that also it's a, it's a great example of what Nick Stephanopoulos calls the efficiency gap, right? It's an extraordinarily inefficient district. That's right. So when you think about the value of each voter, if you pack them all into one district, then the value of each voter who's likely to cast their ballot in a particular direction gets diminished. So it's a way of diluting the power of each individual voter. But I think going back to the bigger question of how this gets resolved, it's natural that litigants would look to courts to try to solve the problem. But it seems kind of unlikely, right, that courts are going to be the arbiters here that will try to crack down on excessive gerrymandering in large part because of a 2019 decision in which the Supreme Court expressly limited its power in this regard. In Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court said that state courts, Congress and state legislatures could regulate partisanship in redistricting, but that any claims of excessive partisanship were not going to be matters on which the federal courts would weigh in. They wouldn't resolve those issues. And so therefore, you see some of this being litigated further down, but it's unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to really be the body that will solve any problem as it pertains to really excessive partisan redistricting. And so then the question is, where should reform take place? And that's why you see some, in some instances, states taking this into their own hands. So the easiest option is for states to hand over the power of map making to independent third party commissions. This is how it's done, I should note, in almost every other Western democracy. And we know now from a history of map making by independent commissions in America that they draw slightly fairer seats. So this time around, independent commissions in places like Arizona, Michigan, and California drew on average maps that decreased the efficiency gap by three points. Uh, according to our our math, which is the exact opposite of what happened in every other state where the efficiency gap increased by three points. So, you know, nationwide, that means like 10 million fewer Americans are being disenfranchised if if all these states had uh, independent commissions. Yeah, it's a tricky question politically, though, right? Because at least rhetorically, 
Democrats are more in favor of these nonpartisan boundary drawing commissions than Republicans are, which more or less makes sense, right? Republicans tend to favor local control. Democrats tend to be more comfortable with technocratic solutions. But in practice, Democrats don't want to unilaterally disarm. So they've heavily gerrymandered, for instance, Illinois and New York. It's a really tough problem to solve who the sort of first mover problem, right? Well, if I can just push back a little bit, we did some polling a while ago, I to be the usual polling guy here, that showed 60% of Republicans wanted to give redistricting power to nonpartisan commissions. And, you know, 70% of Democrats did. So while there is a partisan gap here at the mass level, you know, just among people, it seems that it's exaggerated once we get to the elected official stage. And I guess that's sort of the entire point is, is that the elected officials are going to have their own self-interested biases here. So what's the solution, guys? If I gave each of you a magic congressional redistricting wand and let you set a national policy, what would you what would you favor? I think that nonpartisan commissions are generally sensible. What do you think, Elliot? Nonpartisan independent redistricting commissions are probably the biggest bang for buck that reformers could get. Another good solution is for Congress to establish a national standard for partisan fairness in congressional maps. Uh, the Supreme Court decided in their 2017 case on Wisconsin's partisan gerrymandering, Gill versus Whitford, that Congress should be the one to establish some standard to say that you know the efficiency gap should be smaller than this percentage point in each state. I think that generally sounds sensible. I'm pretty skeptical of Congress doing anything, probably period, but particularly as it relates to voting reform. And so I think what you're going to see is a continuation of this patchwork that we have, where we have some states that have nonpartisan commissions. We have many other states that have extremely partisan gerrymandering underway that will have inevitably some litigation surrounding it. But when you look at America's democratic system, whether it's on an issue of um, access to a ballot box, or whether it's the way that gerrymandering is or isn't allowed to happen, you see this wide variety of policies that are pursued from one state to the next. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The thing about local control is that it actually is local control, which means local variation. It's quiz time. It's Elliot's first time as a contestant. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm absolutely terrified. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Nothing to be terrified about. In 1951, The Economist wrote about a redistricting in New York that had angered Democrats who called it a Dewey-mander after the state's governor, Thomas Dewey. Question one. What dubious honor do Charles C. Pinckney, William Jennings Bryan, and Adlai Stevenson all share with Thomas Dewey? They won by some small sliver of the electorate? I don't actually know. Of course. Elliot? Um, and Elliot, you should know that listeners from Houston to Hong Kong are judging you right now. <laughs> <laughs> we said Adlai Stevenson, William Jennings Bryan, Thomas Dewey, and Charles Pinckney? What do they all have in common? Is this Charles Coatsworth Pinckney? Because there's a difference. <laughs> Man, that... That is a varsity-level question. I don't know. Well, if you don't know, how am I supposed to answer? Hang on. I'm waiting for notes from our producer. I did not come prepared with Charles C. Pinckney's middle name. Yes, it is Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Yes. Uh, so it is, it is C. Pinckney. Okay, sir. Um, are they all from Staten Island? 
Um, that is a dubious honor indeed, but that's not what they shared. They all lost two presidential elections in a row. Dewey's were in 1944 to FDR and 1948 to Harry Truman. William Jennings Bryan, in fact, was the losing Democratic nominee three times in 1896, in 1900, and then he took a cycle off and lost again in 1908. Who beat him each time? Um, one of them would probably have been McKinley. Mm-hmm. I don't know the others. So it's not the same person each time. It's McKinley and Roosevelt twice? We don't know. You both got McKinley right, so it's a point for both of you. McKinley, in fact, did beat him twice in 1896 and 1900, and William Howard Taft beat him in 1908. It wasn't all bad for Brian, though. Woodrow Wilson made him Secretary of State in 1913, which frankly seems a much more enjoyable job than being president. All right. I think I did pretty good at this quiz. You did well, Elliot. Very well. That was good. And extra points yeah. for Coatsworth. A new tactic has occurred to me. I've been watching Veep reruns, and she um, compensates for her utter lack of ability by being an expert trash talker, <laughs> which I think I might start testing out. I'm looking forward to it. Charlotte, you can be the Gary Payton of Checks and Balance. <laughs> I think I just dated myself with that reference. All right, Elliot, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you, Charlotte. It was a pleasure as always. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you to our producers this week, Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz, and to our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, please let people know. Leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcast at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance, and we'll have John Prito back next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.